morning, everybody. I'm David Holt, one of the pastors. Good to have you. And uh, children ages three years through fifth grade that wish to go to children's church, you're dismissed at this time. And the rest of you take out your Bibles, turn to the book of Haggai, as well as the notes that were handed to you. You're going to need those today. Um, because today's going to be a little different, even with the stool and the table, because it's going to be more of a teaching rather than a preaching. Um, you know my normal uh, way of communicating on Sundays is, is more in a preaching mode, but today the passage itself lends itself toward you and I really needing to put our thinking caps on. So this is one of those messages that you need to stay really engaged, you need to use your mind. The Bible talks about we worship, we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so this is going to be a little bit more of an intellectual message. It's going to be a little deeper. It's going to be meaty because I'm going to make a case from three different angles that this Old Testament passage is pointing to Jesus. In Luke 24, 44, Jesus said, all that was written in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms is about me. So the best way to interpret the Old Testament is the way Jesus did. It's called Messiah hermeneutics. <laughs> hermeneutics is the art of interpreting Scripture. And you don't interpret every book of the Bible the same. You don't interpret Proverbs the same way you interpret a gospel or an epistle. And so we're going to do Messiah hermeneutics, <laughs> Jesus hermeneutics, he said that everything written in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, which was the threefold division of the Old Testament. So basically, Jesus was saying, everything in the Old Testament is about me. If you really want to get the correct interpretation of everything in the Old Testament, it's about me. Jesus said that. So if, if you want to interpret the Old Testament the way Jesus said we should interpret the Old Testament, we, we say, how does this point to Jesus? So for the scripture reading today, it's going to be on the screen because I'm going with the New King James. Some translations don't use the word desire, they use the word treasures. And it's a Hebrew word that refers to what we treasure, what we desire, what we long for, what is of supreme value, okay? And so I think the New King James gets it best. Oh, by the way, forgot the congratulations, sorry about that. want to give a huge shout out to Edward and Lauren Krasinski had a baby boy this week. Love that name, Ezra James. Two good biblical words, Ezra James. They got, they got Old Testament and New Testament in that name, so congratulations. All right. Let's stand as I read from the New King James. So watch the screen rather than your Bibles on this scripture reading, if you would. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more... It's a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations. And they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace says the Lord of hosts. Father, anoint your word now and give us revelation that we might love Jesus supremely. Amen. You may be seated. 
We're going to go verse by verse, and then I'm going to touch on why I believe this passage is talking about Jesus, even though it was written in 520 B.C. <laughs> Isn't God's Word amazing? Written in 520 B.C., and it's about Jesus, verse by verse. First, first of all, I want you to note that four times it says, says the Lord of hosts. Four times. Says the Lord of hosts, 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 or declares the Lord Almighty. God is speaking this, so we better pay attention. Now, all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is God. But in this case, for emphasis, four times, says the Lord of hosts. And we've talked about how the Lord of hosts, host is the army of God. God has an army. God's a fighting God. Read my book, God Does What, last chapter. The warrior God. His host is, first of all, the Trinity. <laughs> He's an army in and of himself. He fights and he wins. Then host includes angels, the angelic host. And then host includes you and I if you're in Christ. You're a part of the army of God. Verse 6, we see here our theme, shaken to awaken. God is telling them again, I'm going to shake the nations. I'm going to shake the earth. God shakes things in our lives that we might supremely love him. He shakes us. He shakes nations. He shakes families. He shakes marriages. He shakes individuals that we might get out what doesn't belong so we might be more supremely committed to him. Shaken to awaken us spiritually. If you're being shaken right now, Know that it's the loving, firm hand of God to awaken you that you might love Jesus more supremely. Then in verse 6, it talks about shaking the heavens. Now, possible examples of these shakings, if we believe this is pointing to Jesus. Shaking the heavens could be in reference to the star of Bethlehem. God shook the stars to point the wise men to Jesus. Shaking the earth could refer to the earthquake when Jesus breathed his last and died on the cross. Shaking of the sea could be in reference to the storm at the Sea of Galilee that Jesus spoke and it was calm. Shaking of the dry land could refer to Jesus when he died and rose from the dead and the bodies of the saints were raised and appeared in Jerusalem. And we know from prophetic passages about Jesus' second coming that one of the signs will be the shaking that occurs in the heavens and on the earth, Matthew 24. Then verse 7, shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. Mm, and they shall come, so different ways of translating this, they shall come to the desire of all nations, and then some translations say that the desire of all nations shall come. I believe this is referring to Jesus. Historical support for that interpretation. Charles Spurgeon took that view. The very popular commentary on the Old Testament, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown takes that view. Matthew Henry took that view. John MacArthur takes that view. Henrietta, Henrietta Mears takes that view, and countless others. So I'm in good company, verse 8. Then God says, I'm going to fill the second temple with my glory and it's going to be greater than the former temple. The reason he said that was because the greater glory of the second temple, this one, 
is going to be greater, not because of silver and gold, because it wasn't going to be as ornate as Solomon's. And that's why he says in verse 9, all the silver and gold is mine. I don't need any more. I can bring whatever I want to this temple, but I'm not going to make this one more glorious because of the silver and gold, but because of the desire of all nations. That's what's going to make this temple. And this temple, I believe, is referring to when Christ comes and ministers in the temple that was in Jerusalem. And ultimately, the temple of our bodies, because the Bible says believers are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the greater glory is in you. The greater glory is in you, Christian, because Christ lives in you. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, then he finally says, peace I'm going to bring to this house. And we'll talk about that. So I'm going to build my case today by talking about glory, desirable nations, and peace. Lots of subpoints. Stay with me all in your notes. First of all, what is the glory of God that will fill the temple? First of all, let's begin with the definition of glory. And this definition will help you understand the word glory anytime you read it in the scriptures. To fully reveal the character and likeness of God. It's a great definition of glory. To fully reveal the character and the likeness of God. When you have God's character fully revealed, you have his glory. Think about the verse in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Put that definition in there. Christ in you, the hope of the fully revealed character and likeness of God. So God is, Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit, and that is the way God wants to fully reveal his character and likeness to the world. Second, it's the manifest presence of God. When the glory of God came into the temple in the Old Testament, there are verses that talk about that the priest could not even stand to minister because the manifest presence of God was so strong. The word glory in some translations or in some uh, Hebrew passages, it's the word kabod. It's the word, it means heaviness. It's, it's a weight. He comes upon you and it's weighty and you cannot even stand because his glory fills the temple or comes upon somebody. Reminds me of that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. They said, don't look. When the Ark of the Covenant was going to be opened, don't look. And then those that did, what happened? <laughs> their flesh just, just came off their skin like wax. That's the power of God. That's the manifest presence of God. Thirdly, the Word became flesh, Jesus. Now listen to this verse in light of our definition. John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only son. And the word became flesh and we beheld his fully revealed character and likeness. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. So you see Jesus, you see God. You see Jesus, you see his glory. You see Jesus, you see his fully revealed character and likeness. Number four, now let's look specifically at this glory being spoken of here as filling the temple. Jesus did much ministry in and around the temple. As an infant, he was brought to the temple. At 12, he amazed people at the temple. He overturned the tables in the temple twice. It says in the Gospels, as was his custom, he would often teach and preach and minister at the temple. 
on the Sabbath day. So Jesus did much ministry in and around the temple, thus glory, Jesus, fully revealed character and likeness of God in the temple. Fifth, Jesus said his body was the ultimate temple. In John 2 and 19, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And then it says he spoke of his body being the temple. So Jesus said in John 2 and 19, the ultimate temple is me. You destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. It was a prophetic prediction on Jesus, by Jesus that he would die and rise again on the third day as being the ultimate temple. So again, the, now think about this. The physical temple in the Old Testament, Solomon's temple, it was used for blood sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. It was used as a place of corporate worship for the people to gather. And it was used as the place for the, it was the place where the manifest presence of God came. Take those three and put them through the grid of Jesus. Jesus shed his blood so we could have forgiveness of sins. Jesus makes us reconciled with God so that we can worship corporately together. And Jesus fully manifests the presence of God like none other. He was the ultimate temple. This next one is huge, so don't miss it. The cross of Jesus best displays the glory of God. Again, our definition, to fully reveal the character and likeness of God. Where is God's character most fully revealed? Jesus and when he specifically died at the cross, died on the cross. Watch this. Let's take his sovereignty, the overarching attribute of God, his sovereignty, says Jesus was slain before the foundation of the earth. <laughs> he is holy. Thus, he requires a holy, perfect, righteous sacrifice. Jesus was that sacrifice. He is loving. Therefore, he provided the very sacrifice he required in his own son. Jesus is a God of mercy and justice. Justice and mercy kiss at the cross. He's a God of anger and wrath. Jesus drank the cup of wrath when he died on the cross. He is a God of faithfulness. He does what he says. He predicted long ago he would do this, and he did it. He's a God of power over all forces, sin, sickness, death, and Satan. At the cross, Jesus defeated all of those. God's nature, God's character is most fully revealed at the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why in John 12, 23, Jesus says, Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. In the Gospel of John, you have the word time and glory repeated often, all referencing the cross. He said, it is not yet time. My time has not yet come. Then in 1223, my time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, referencing his death and resurrection, which was where the fully revealed character of God would be seen most clearly. God's fully revealed character and likeness is most clearly seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. Number two, how is Jesus the desire of all nations? So here's the key phrase in our passage. 
that Spurgeon and many others said is pointing to Jesus will begin very broad and basic and then get more specific. Number one, God so loved the world. That's all nations. John 3 and 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. All nations. Number two, all nations are in need of him due to what? Sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. None can come to God based on their works. None can come to God based on their religion. None can come to God based on their goodness. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, the manifest character and likeness of God. We have fallen short. All nations. No one's excluded. No nation gets a get-out-of-jail-free card because all have sinned. And third, he died and rose again for the sin of all people, all nations. 1 John 2 and 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and the sins of the whole world. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and the sins of the whole world. Now when someone comes to faith in Christ, when someone receives Jesus, have you done that? When someone repents of their sins and puts their trust in Christ alone for salvation, what happens at that moment? They become a child of God they become a part of what is called the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones. So reason number four that Jesus is the desire of all nations, his church is composed of people of all nations. In Revelation 5 and 9, it says that he has redeemed people and he has called to himself a people of every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. So his church, his ecclesia, his family, is composed of all nations. Fifth, he commanded us to go to all nations. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he called us as his people to take this good news to all nations because Jesus is the desire of all nations. And that's the next reason all nations desire what he has to offer. Whether they realize it or not. <laughs> what is the greatest need in all people? It's the need to be forgiven. Forgiven of our sins, made right with God, have a clear conscience, know that that guilt, those things we've done that we're ashamed of and we know have offended a holy God, that it's forgiven, that it's cleansed, that it's removed. Second greatest need is love. The need for love, the need to give love and receive love. Also the need for peace, peace with God, peace with ourselves. Jesus gives all of that in the gospel. He gives forgiveness, he gives love, and he gives peace. This is why Blaise Pascal said there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. And it cannot be filled with people nor things, but only through a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So what all nations desire, ultimately in their heart, at the core of their being, whether they realize it or not, is what Jesus has to offer as the desire of all nations. Now, just to give some icing on the cake for my argument today, it occurred to me this week that there are three famous Christmas carols that all reference Jesus as the desire of all nations. 
Bet you didn't know this. <clears throat> Hark the herald angels sing. Hark the herald angels Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. That's verse 4. It's not often sung. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Angels from the realms of glory. Angels from the realms of Sages, leave your contemplations, brighter visions beam afar. Seek the great desire of nations, ye have seen his natal star. Come on. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. Three Christmas songs. All referencing Jesus as the desire of all nations. Now finally today, this phrase about peace. Verse 9. And I'll bring peace to this temple, peace to this house. In this place I will give peace. So now, how does Jesus grant peace? Well, first of all, our lack of peace with God is due to sin. Sin causes separation. Sin causes a lack of peace. Because peace occurs when two things that were at odds are reconciled. When that which kept those two things or people apart has now been removed and you have peace. Peace of nations occurs when that which caused them to be separated and maybe at war has been removed and they have a peace treaty. Well, our lack of peace with God is due to sin. Second, Jesus shed his blood to forgive us our sins. In 1 John 1, 7, it says that his blood was shed to grant forgiveness of all sin. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when the sin that separates us from God is removed only by the blood of Jesus, then we have peace. And so thirdly, through Jesus, we have peace with God. You see, the reason that many missed Jesus as the Messiah was because they had interpreted Old Testament prophecies about peace as being a political peace, a military peace, a Messiah who would come and overthrow the Roman Empire. That's not the peace Jesus was coming to bring. He was coming to bring a peace in our hearts. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And in Isaiah 9, it says, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Ephesians 2 and 14, he himself is our peace. Colossians 1 and 20, he made peace through his blood. Romans 5 and 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace because the sin barrier has been removed. 
Peace because we've been forgiven. Peace because we've been declared righteous in his sight. Peace because he comes to live in our hearts. Peace because he accepts us. Peace because he loves us. Peace because we're reconciled and we're part of his family. I hope today that you've seen that this passage is about Jesus. It's about Jesus because he fully reveals the character and likeness of God, glory. It's about Jesus because he's the desire of all nations. And it's about Jesus because he and only he can give us peace with God. The final thing I want to say today about Jesus being the desire of all nations is that I think this ultimately refers to Jesus being our all in all, being our chief need meter, being Lord of our lives, being that which we treasure supremely. John 14, 6, that he's not just your way and your truth, but he's your life. Colossians 3, when Christ, who is my life, is revealed. Is he your life? For many Christians, he's their way and their truth, but he's not necessarily their life. For Jesus to be your life means he's what you desire more than anything else. He's supreme. He's your treasure. He's what Psalm 62 talks about when it says, In God alone is my sufficiency. In God alone is my joy. My joy, my life, my purpose doesn't come ultimately from my job, my possessions, not even from my spouse, not even from my children. It comes from Jesus. Is he your life today? Is he your desire? It's Psalm 73 when the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is he your portion it's what Mark 12 talks about when it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's what Revelation talks about when it says return to your first love, your supreme love. It's what Hebrews 4 means when it says fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's what Philippians 3 was speaking of when Paul said, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Where is your heart today? Do you know Christ as Savior? Are you experiencing Christ as Lord? Is He the desire of your heart? Is He your all in all? Is God shaking some things in your lives so that those things that are keeping you from loving Jesus supremely are getting shaken out that you might return to Christ? and experience Christ as your life. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are sufficient for all of our needs. We thank you that you came not only to remove sin and give us forgiveness, but you also came to give us purpose, to give us life, to be our sufficiency, to be our all in all. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus that every person listening in the room and online, if anybody is not saved, if anybody is yet to yield their life to Christ, right now pray and invite Jesus to take control of your life. Put your trust in Him. Open the door of your heart. Receive Him now. 
Just say, Lord Jesus, come in, take control. And if you are a believer, if you know you are saved today, what is it perhaps in your life that you are putting before Him? What is it perhaps in your life that is keeping you from experiencing Christ as your life, as your treasure, as your desire? Do you desire Jesus more than anything else? And if you realize today that there is something you desire more than Him or that you have put above Him, confess it, repent of it, hand it to the Lord in genuine humility and God through the Holy Spirit will begin to transform you. He will. He will honor your obedience. He will honor your surrender. Give it to Him. Deliver it to Him. And he has this amazing way of removing it and replacing it with his presence, replacing it with his power, replacing it with his purposes. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for how you are the desire of all nations. You are, Jesus, the glory of God. You are <laughs> the one who grants peace. You are the Prince of Peace. So we thank you today for opening our eyes and giving us revelation for how this passage is all about Jesus. And may our lives, like this passage, be all about Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, now we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper because this is such a fitting way to worship God after hearing this passage on Jesus. And in the elements of communion, you have two. You have juice and you have bread. And I want to give you a little nugget of truth today that I hope will make your experience of communion a little bit deeper than maybe it's ever been before. I believe the juice obviously refers to the blood of Jesus, and that is what cleanses us from sin. That is what removes the barrier between us and God. The, the bread represents the body of Christ. And according to Romans 6, I believe that refers to the fact that we have also the power of sin broken in our lives. So the blood removes the penalty of sin. The body removes the power of sin. So that when you are saved, you not only receive forgiveness and cleansing, but you also receive the Holy Spirit, a new nature, and the power of sin is broken. Because Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. So as you partake today, partake with the realization and with the worship that you're cleansed of the penalty of sin and the power of sin has been broken in your life. If our communion folks could come up and go ahead and get the tables ready. And I'd like to ask that our elders and our prayer team be some of the first to receive communion and then to be available to pray with anybody that may need prayer after you partake. The way we do communion here is you come and you get the elements yourselves. You can kneel here at the altar, the steps, and partake there. You can take them back to your seat. Um, but we don't all partake together. It's just when you're ready and when you choose to do that, put the empty cup back in the basket and there is, there is gluten-free bread in one of the trays for those that need that.
So, Father, we pray now that you would sanctify this time, bless it, and that our participation in this time of communion will be an act of worship, that we will partake in a worthy manner as the scriptures speak of, and we thank you and praise you for all that this represents. And we claim that verse in 1 Corinthians 11 that says, every time you partake, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We long for your return. We look for your return. We want to, peop- we want to be a people who are ready for your return. That when you return, you find us holy, you find us abiding, and you find us full of faith for your glory. Amen. You come when you're ready. destiny no power of hell 
shall ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand seated. Well, guess what? Look at your watches. You're like, what? It's 10.04. We're not done. But we almost are. We're purposefully ending early today because you may have noticed on both sides of the room are a bunch of tables. And we uh, gave you this as you came in today. And since this was printed, 